Do you have a today in history? I do. Cool. Wow. Prepare. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. You know, I show up uh, week in and week out. I'm getting heckled here by the sideline reporter. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> uh, this is all staying in. <laughs> all right. Well, in that case, it's episode 123. Uh, this is a podcast. Things are dead. Uh, I'm Mike. That's Gavin. Fia also showed up. How you guys doing? <laughs> Hey. <laughs> We're good. At least, oh, I'm good. I don't want to speak for Fia, but yeah, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Great. Glad you guys uh, are doing well. How are you? <laughs> oh, I'm doing fantastic. Good. And uh, I'm trying to think here when the last time we uh, last time we recorded was. But uh, yeah, I think the last time we recorded, we were talking about how I had a whole lot of work to do to get ready for uh, the Israel and Hamas situation. And let me oh, tell yeah, you what. Tell you what, it's been a whole lot of work for the the last two weeks straight, every day, yeah. making sure I'm up to date on what's going on there. I bet. Dang. It's been nuts. Good news is, got a wedding this weekend. Very happy about that. Nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been a wild, October, wild month. <laughs> wild month. Wild month, October. Can confirm. No, I hear you. Um, yeah. Even just in my own personal life. Uh, yep. the, house, the house stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I was talking with Fia before Mike hopped on and we bought a house successfully. Um, I don't know how that's possible. Neither do I, to be honest. Um, like if you would ask me like, hey, how do you go about buying a house? I would have absolutely no idea. Um, you contact a real estate agent and then you sign a whole bunch of paperwork and then they give you the keys to a house that you don't own, but the bank owns, uh, and you make payments on it for 30 years until you own it. That's pretty much how it works. Um, well, I mean, when you put yeah. it like that. Also, um, in the past couple of weeks, uh, we basically, so we thought we had, uh, until December 1st in this current apartment, um, and spoilers, I mentioned last episode that I might be recording this from the new house. Mike thought that was very optimistic and he was right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we thought we had until December 1st and then our landlord uh, found somebody else to take over the lease starting November 1st and was was kind of like, is this okay? But mostly being like, hey, this is happening. Hmm. Um, so it's nice that we don't have to pay an extra month rent to our landlord. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, we would have liked to have had time to paint some of the rooms without having all of our stuff in there. Um, longer term, we wanted to, or even in this you know month that we thought we had, we wanted to rip up some of the carpet because there's this nice hardwood floor underneath. Um, but, you know, you have to like chip off all the glue that they used to like glue down the carpet and, and sand the, the, you know, hardwood and stuff. So it was like, it wasn't going to be a lot of effort, but it was going to be a process. And now we just don't have time for that. So, um, yeah. Anyway, we do own a house now, but, uh, one that is absolutely still livable, but maybe we don't have as much time to sort of customize it like we wanted. Um, Mm. but you know, all things considered, uh, I'm a millennial who just bought a house. I'm breaking all sorts of stereotypes and rules and yeah. I mean, this is That's what awesome. happens. I think this can be a lesson to a lot of people here. You know, Gavin doesn't eat any avocado toast. Uh, Gavin, <laughs> Gavin's not going out. He makes that coffee at home uh, and saves all that money. He's able to buy a that, house. That is actually so, true. I even make my own beard oil there. at home. Wow. Right, well, you know, that's not, uh, I haven't heard that one before. So Beard oil is really expensive. <laughs> my uh, bespoke bespoke beard oil um but yeah so we're gonna get into this episode we're gonna be talking about something else that uh interesting and important that happened to me recently which was uh this past week from uh like tuesday night until uh, about noon on saturday i was at the conference uh the annual conference of the society of vertebrate paleontology where i uh presented my master's thesis as a talk so we're going to talk a little bit about um, what it's like to present research at a conference. And Fia is going to chime in a little bit because she's also done that. Um, yeah. And then I'm going to talk about just some brief highlights of uh, some cool talks and things that I went to while I was there, neat paleontology stuff. 
that uh, other folks are working on. But first, Fia, can you hit us with the housekeeping? Yes, I got you guys. So I know it's been a while, but don't forget to rate the show on whatever platform you listen to. Uh, and to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube to give us feedback about the show and any future topics you'd like to hear on the podcast. And if you would like to be a guest on the show, be sure to fill out our guest form. All of that can be found in the show notes. And so, Gavin, do you know what next episode topic is going to be? I sure don't. Um, ah! My instinct is to go with a, a group of lizards, but I don't know how good of a fossil record this particular group has, so... Uh, I'm going to look more into that. And uh, so it might be about some lizards or it could be about something totally different. Um, yeah. So there oh. we go. As uh, somebody's, somebody's dinner done or. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to mention that, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm air frying some chicken that needed to be made. Uh, yeah. And that's, so at some point I'm going to have to take care of that. But in the meantime, I got a today in history. If you guys want it. I'm sure yeah, do. we're ready. All right, so 1970, as I'm looking at this, I had one thing picked. We're going to get to that one thing, but I want to talk about the two other things, mostly because I think they're funny. Cool, um, so cool. a couple things happened in 1978. Number one, Gaylord Perry wins uh, the National League Cy Young Award. Why is that funny? Because the dude's name is Gaylord Perry. Oh, um, my. Yeah. Number two, 1978, Israeli government improves in-principle draft on compromise peace. Um, tell you what. That turned out well. Yeah, that like that's like a dark kind of funny, um, like the bad kind of funny. And then the thing that I originally saw here um, in 1978, the movie Halloween, uh, directed by mm. John Carpenter, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, um, was released. I've never seen Halloween. Um, I've heard good things about it. Oh yeah, but, I guess uh, this is like technically the closest thing to a Halloween episode we have. So um, it's our spooktacular yeah, Halloween. Yep. Presenting at conferences, very scary. Uh, as we're <laughs> uh, I can only definitely, imagine. definitely intentional. Uh, this this topic uh, at this time, <laughs> yeah, definitely on purpose. Well, in that case, let's get right into it. Gavin, talk to us about this conference. Wait, Michael. What? Fia's here. I'm here. Wait, I, I, do we do we officially change this over? Are we not? Are we? Is it still Swamp Corner? Is it the other thing? No, we are debuting the Seagrass Corner. Seagrass Corner. Seagrass Corner. Yes. Fia, you go ahead. Out of the swamp and into the seagrass prairie. Fia, you try and have as good of a transition as I just tried to have. Go for it. So this is Seagrass Corner. We're going to be talking about all things seagrass seagrass ecology, the animals that live there, and really whatever I come across in my daily, weekly research. So I'm going to start off Seagrass Corner by introducing one of my main seagrass I will be looking at during my PhD, and that is turtle grass, which is Thalassia testudinum. Any guesses what eats this grass? Manatees. No, that's manatee grass. <laughs> See, I'm already learning. I knew manatees <laughs> ate grass. I didn't know there was like a difference. That's cool. Yes. Well, I'll do manatee grass next time. <laughs> um, All right. So like the name says, it's turtle grass. So the turtles eat them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're a marine sea grass. They form meadows in sandy or muddy bottoms in the Caribbean Sea and Gulf of Mexico. This species is a slow growing and one of the thicker um, strand seagrasses. So like their, their, their leaves are wider than some of the other ones like the uh, manatee grass. And they're char characterized by having higher resilience to stress so they can handle more of the um, like stressors from storms and other weather events because um, they have like a more biomass um, underground, they have more root structure, but because they are, take so long to grow, they have a low recovery or ability to grow back compared to other seagrasses. So there's kind of like a 
a cost benefit thing of they, they can handle stress really well, but once they get ripped out, it takes a long time for those seagrass to recover. Okay. And yeah, they uh, form really, really wide, spread out, thick, luscious meadows of grass underwater. And that uh, provides habitat and important feeding grounds for a lot of organisms. Neat. Yeah. Yeah, seagrass is always something that I, I enjoy learning about. We talked about it a decent amount when I went to Belize back in mm-hmm. uh, undergrad. But yeah. it was more or less just like, hey, we're going to the seagrass spot so we can see the manatees. Uh, we didn't go right. there for the grass. So, yeah. Um, but no, it was, yeah, it's going to be really awesome to, to learn more about it as, uh, yeah. as we go through. Cool. All right, All what do right. you got for us, Kevin? Yeah, so... Uh, if you haven't been able to tell so far, it's going to be a very informal episode. Um, so, this past week, like I said, from Tuesday to Saturday, was uh, the annual meeting of the uh, Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, or SVP, as I'm going to call it, because I don't want to say the whole name. Uh, it was in Cincinnati, Ohio, which I was kind of confused about at first. Because I was like, why? (laughs) Why there? Um, And it turns out it's because there is a wonderful museum in Cincinnati. Mm. Um, So, but first we're going to talk about um, presenting at conferences. And then I'm going to, like I said, break down some of the uh, different talks or posters or things that I went to um, and and learned about. So, Uh yeah. So. One of the first, one of the most important things about giving a talk at a conference is uh, when during the conference your talk is, as in like what day, because uh, unfortunately mine was on the last day. Oh, that's tough. And by that point, usually a lot of people have left. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Or they uh, have learned too much knowledge in a short amount of time and are brain dead. That's also a huge thing. Um, I had to take, uh, you know, a, a minute. I didn't go to too much on, I think, Thursday afternoon. So I got there, uh, like, Tuesday night, uh, went to sort of the welcoming thing. The uh, Cincinnati also has a really great zoo. Uh, if you've heard of Fiona the Hippo. <laughs> I, I believe there's a more famous uh, former resident of the Cincinnati Zoo. Yeah, but we're going to talk about current residents. Um, okay. No, we can talk about Harambe, obviously. <laughs> I was like holding my breath. Yep. Uh, Harambe famously is from the Cincinnati Zoo, but uh, if you've heard of Fiona, the, the hippo, she is also from uh, the Cincinnati Zoo. But the director of the zoo, so like the head, head, head zookeeper, um, gave a talk about basically a very informal he basically just told a bunch of stories about how he used to pal around with Jane Goodall, which was actually pretty sick. Uh, yeah. It was really interesting to listen to because she, however cool you think Jane Goodall is, um, at least just from these handful of, you know, stories and stuff that he told us, yeah, she's way cooler. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I got there. That was at like eight o'clock or something. So that was sort of the official, unofficial start of, uh, of the conference. So I went to talks all day wednesday and then thursday morning and then when you're giving a talk you have to at least this is how gsa the geological society of america uh usually does it and this is how svp did it as well but it's the day before your talk uh you give your talk you have to take it on a flash drive to this place called the speaker ready room um and they basically put all of the talks the slideshows onto a server that then each of the rooms has access to for uh, you know, pulling up all the talks. So they don't have to worry about, you know, different people signing into their Google Drive or their Apple, whatever whatever the heck Apple calls their PowerPoint equivalent. Um, but yeah, so uh, that way it's all just sort of in one place on hardware. You don't have to worry about the internet, you know, cutting out as much. But uh, yeah, so I had to have my talk in by end of day Friday. And so I, on top of just, also being a little overwhelmed with knowledge uh, by Thursday afternoon. Uh, I was like, well, I also need to finish my talk. So I, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're always making last minute stuff. And that's actually one of the benefits of having it later in the, 
in the conference is that you get to watch more talks and be like, that's a good idea. I should add a slide about that. Um, Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, yeah, I, I remember. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. The last conference I went to, like I went into the room that I was presenting at the first day and the screens had washed out all of the color. So you just mm. could not see anything. And so immediately after that talk, I went and I darkened everything. Because I was like, <laughs> no, it will not happen. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And there's, there's always tech issues that happen. Like I went to one right. talk that was uh, about uh, histology. So that's when you take, I think, it, I think general histology is just any tissues. Um, mm. You take a tissue sample, put it under a microscope and see what that tells you. In paleontology, that is almost exclusively taking slices of bone. And putting that on a thin section, looking at it under a microscope. But uh, typically, those uh, talks are very have very pretty colors because you have to dye the different sections of the bone in order to be able to tell them apart. And so they normally use these like really vibrant uh, purples and and greens and stuff. Uh, but this one, some of her images just didn't show up, and that's like the focal point of this girl's talk. I felt so bad for her. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's just the kind of stuff that can happen, uh, you know, when you're presenting at a conference. But <coughs> sorry, I also uh, talking a lot over the conference has made my voice pretty hoarse too. Yeah, that's something else. Is that you're not even if you if you're not even giving a talk, you're just talking constantly. Um, yes. Whether you're talking to people presenting posters. Um, or just talking to, to different people that you're meeting because you're all there, uh, you know, for the same purpose. So you all at least have a handful of things in common. So, um, yeah. So it's just, my voice is real hoarse. So, uh, but, but getting to, yeah, that's a very fun pun because I presented uh, quite a bit about, about horses. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So got my talk done. Um, so it was due by four. I think I had my talk done at around three o'clock. Um, okay, so we're we're working right up into the last minute here. Yeah, and it's just little things like, oh, you know, this figure could be laid out a little better. Um, like the, all the slides were in place. It was just a matter of like making things look kind of nicer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the substance yeah. wasn't going to change at that point. No. And I mean, this was on my master's thesis, so the substance on this hasn't changed in the last two years. <laughs> uh, uh, my talk was at a kind of a weird time, because it's also kind of right before lunch, which is also not a terrific time for your talk to be. You don't <laughs> want it to be right on either side of lunch, because yeah. people are going to leave early for lunch <laughs> and come back late. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was still about uh, 50 people or so. Uh, in my room when I gave my talk, which was nice. I frankly didn't expect there to be that many. <laughs> uh, but I got up there and gave my talk and uh, was way more nervous in the lead up than I should have been, frankly. I feel like that's just kind of the nature of giving talks is that you're always psyching yourself out the whole time leading yeah. up to it. And then once you get up there, you're like, well, I'm here. Uh, Nothing I can do about it now. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. And then so typically the the general conference format is uh, your talk is 10 to 12 minutes. Followed by a few minutes for questions. You you have a total of 15 minutes, including questions that might vary Mm -hmm. a little bit from conference to conference. But that's usually in the ballpark. Um, no, but, that's that's right over here too. Yeah, um, and so I finished with, and like the the most important thing that everyone has always like shoved into my brain throughout my entire you know academic career is like, if you are giving a talk, the worst possible thing you can do is go over your time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Truly. Because that throws the entire rest of the day off track. Um, and whatever you have to say is not that important. Like, I don't really care what the conference right. is. Right. Yeah. Either that's, you're there yeah, for you, in which case you can do your whole thing. If it's a conference, it's Gavin Davidson's blah, blah, blah. <laughs> or if it's, you know, what, what was the name of this conference? Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. Yeah, there was other people there. So, like, you never, like. There sure you, was. Right. 
It's like a commencement speech. Like you go up there, you do your four or five minutes and you get off. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I finished mine with uh, about two and a half minutes left. And I, uh, different places have it different ways. Some have just like three lights where it's green until 10 minutes, yellow from like 10 to 12, and then after 12 turns red. Um, this one had a combo of that and just an actual digital clock. Um, so I finished with about two and a half minutes left and I finished my talk and looked down and saw that. And I was like, did a little fist pump to myself. Like, yeah. Because <laughs> um, the first time I ran through it, I got to like 14 minutes and I was only like three quarters of the way through. And I just stopped. I'm like, yeah, I'm not even going to finish this, this run. I got to trim this down. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah. And then I got asked a couple of questions. Uh, one, unfortunately, so I had mentioned in like one slide that we have some, uh, a cat at the site, some cat specimens. Somebody asked me about that. Cause I didn't talk about it for the rest of the thing. And I was like, yeah, unfortunately it's just like a single part of a cat jaw with like a single broken tooth in it. So it's like, I couldn't even tell you what family or what like genus it's from. Uh, it's just a cat. That's all I could kind of tell. So he was a little disappointed. Um, so I was assuming that guy worked with cats. Um, yeah. But uh, then somebody else somewhat corrected me, um, hmm. which, yeah, which is always something you don't love to see. Um, but he had asked me, so basically, if you remember, I'll, I'll maybe I'll put a link to the episode where I, you know, talk about my master's thesis in depth down in the show notes, but we did a whole episode about it. Um, but basically the, the point of my thesis was taking all the fossils from this one particular site in uh, South Dakota and comparing it to a bunch of other sites around the Great Plains and then a couple out west uh, just to see where this my site fell in time relative to all those other ones. And you do that by sort of comparing what species you find where and uh, which sites are more similar to one another. And so um, one of the sites, not even one of the important ones particularly, it was one of the West Coast ones, so we just threw those in as, like, a control. Um, he had asked me, because that site, to my knowledge, is in Nevada, and he asked me about it, and I was like, you know, I couldn't tell you where in Nevada. I, th I think it's, like, Western Nevada toward the Sierras. Uh, and he said, the only one of that name that I know is in California. And I was like, uh, okay, thanks, thanks for the clarification. Because I'm like, how do you, what else do you say to that when you're in right. a room full of people up mm -hmm. in front, especially because yeah. being a relatively young, you know, person in my career and he was not like super senior, but older for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, that was just a little awkward. Um, but then I left, I talked to like one or two more people just as I was leaving, but then I had an eight hour drive home. Uh, so then I left immediately, basically right after my talk. Um, but yeah, so it's, it was, it was a, a really interesting experience. I'd presented posters before, but never a talk. Um, cool. and it was always something that I wanted to do, especially at this particular conference, just cause it's like the paleontology conference. Um, so ever since I was a, a little baby paleontologist and back in community college, I've been always like, yeah, I want to someday present at SVP. And, uh, <laughs> and I did. Yay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you had anything else to, to add about your experience uh, giving talk at, at, at a conference. Like, so what, what <laughs> conferences have you given presentations at? Yeah, so I've only given one uh, presentation. I did one poster, too. Um, but it was at the... Benthic Ecology Society meeting, and it was in Miami. Okay. Um, and I did that in the spring, and it was it was really cool experience. It was my people, like yeah, like you <laughs> said, like is just the people that I shared a lot of interests with, and so it was it was really cool. I learned so much. I also was very socially exhausted. Oh God, um, yeah. I think I presented on. It was a four-day conference, and I think I was on day two or three, um, right in the morning, and 
that's that's also pretty tough being early like that that's because then you just like haven't had time for coffee or anything yet Mm -hmm. yeah so my i have mixed feelings about my presentation because the person that went before me was very nervous and anxious and kind Mm. of uh set the mood for the whole room Uh. it just kind of made everyone feel a little reserved i guess that's tough yeah and um i decided that i wanted to start off my presentation by telling a joke and so i told a really corny uncomfortable joke go on about bivalves (laughs) that uh did not get too many laughs but i did it anyway (laughs) and um then I went to move on to my slides and the clicker wasn't working. There was Oh like, no. The stuff was not working. And I was like, oh, ah. what? that's the worst. Yep. So I probably wasted two minutes. Like the people, the technical people trying to figure it out, they were like doing their stuff. And I'm like, man, I really wish I saved this joke for now. <laughs> um so, yep. But then yeah. it got all worked out. I still like nailed my presentation. I did it in the time I'd been like aiming for twelve minutes. It's just like mm-hmm. there weren't any, there wasn't any time for questions for me because of the interesting issues. Yeah. So SVP that happened a number of times, and they especially if it happened like at the beginning they would just say no you can you know they'd talk to like say to the person you know who's actually running the timer like you know start it now um which was i i thought was really nice even though that does kind of mess up the rest of the day until the next break um but uh that was at least really nice especially for people who's like uh first talk it was or first time you know at the conference uh but yeah, there was also uh, a person who went in front of me who was pre- presenting, um, I think it was his first presentation as well, but he was presenting, I think, the first chapter of his PhD. Mm. And so, uh, so he was, you know, a bit more experienced or had, you know, been in academia longer than me, but he was, you know, pr- roughly our age. Um, but he said uh, toward the end, especially like when people were asking him questions, which is by far the most nerve wracking part because the entire time, at least for me leading up to it, I wasn't psyching myself out thinking that like, I'm not going to do well in the talk because I'm like, I know the material I spent two years working on literally just this. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I was most nervous about is the questions. You never know what someone's going to say. Because there's always somebody, there's always somebody who knows more about the thing, or at least equally about the thing as you do. And in my case, having just finished, you know, my my master's instead of, you know, having got a PhD and then working in the field for, you know, 20 years. Um, yeah, there were lots of people in that room who knew more about paleontology and even like my, you know, time period and uh, that, than I do. So it's like, I am just the entire time crapping myself thinking that someone's just going to eviscerate me uh, about something that I did wrong. And for the most part, people are kind enough to not do that. But that's yeah. always like the nightmare scenario. Um, See, I don't really feel that fear that. Uh, I mean, like, I guess I know like it's always possible, but I don't. I try and trick myself into saying it's not probable. And like, that's, that's definitely true. Uh, you know, people don't go to conferences just to dump on other people. No. Uh, but there, there was, there's been a couple of times in the, mostly the GSA conferences, I guess only the GSA conferences, because that's the only ones that I've been to, uh, before this one. But there's been like one or two times where someone kind of is like, goes up and kind of rips someone a new one. It's like a couple of times it is like a little warranted because 
something that a lot of people probably don't realize is that when you're presenting at a conference, it's not peer reviewed. So right. this isn't like publication publication. And so no one else really sees this before it goes out, which means that sometimes some kooky stuff can kind of slip through the cracks. And sometimes it is a little warranted to be like, your data does not mean what you think it means. And you're trying to make all these big inferences that you just can't make off of the data that you showed us here. Um, for example, nobody really, uh, there was one talk that like, if I knew just a little bit more, I probably would have been like, mm, I'm going to call a little BS on this. Um, but also he went his full 15 minutes and nobody could ask him questions. Um, <laughs> but it was a, it was about um, neonate pterosaurs. So that is like within the egg or extremely freshly hatched pterosaurs. Um, I think he was proposing that these ones that he supposedly found were like, still in the egg and just to the point of development where they like the bones were just starting to be kind of mineralized. So like really early on. Um, and it's like, that is extremely rare to begin with because fossil eggs are just exceedingly rare. And also fossil pterosaur eggs are they're out there, but extremely like however uncommon fossil eggs are pterosaur eggs basically just don't exist um and so he was making all these inferences and all these things and like labeling uh all these different bones and things uh on this still inside the egg fossilized pterosaur and i was i was there uh several of my friends from grad school uh, that i went to grad school with at the school of mines were there as well so i was with a couple of them during this talk and we were just kind of looking at each other like i don't think that is what he's saying it is that just looks like a rock that just looks like a rock to me um and he even was talking about uh there's a particular uh foramen which is a hole in in bone for different blood vessels or nerves to pass through uh in the humerus so your upper arm bone and he was saying that not only could he see that uh on an animal who's uh, you know, upper arm bone is, you know, less than a millimeter long, but that it was filled in with like amniotic fluid or like the equivalent of that, of an egg. And I, that's really when I just looked at, uh, who, who was actually my roommate when I was in my second year of grad school, Grace. And we just kind of looked at each other and we we're like, what? <laughs> No, that that's just like chemically not really possible. But yeah. again, that this that kind of thing can happen, and I kind of wish somebody did. Uh, that's one where it would have been kind of warranted. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, by and large, you know, really roasting somebody after their talk doesn't really happen. Um, but yeah, overall, um, positive, if not kind of stressful experience uh, presenting the talk. But I'm, I'm really somebody, glad that I did it. If somebody wanted to, like they were in this field, or I imagine this would be applicable to other fields, like how does one wind up giving one of these talks? Um, so you, you submit an abstract. To um, who, to where? To the, to the conference. So Okay. Um, and this works both ways for, for talks and posters. It's a similar thing. You just check a box which one you want this to be for. Or you can check both. Mm -hmm. So where it's like, um, if there's not a good talk session, because all the different sessions for the talks are themed and mm -hmm. they base the theme on what kinds of abstracts get submitted. So it's like, if you have one talk abstract that's just kind of really out in left field, not even like wacky and, and kooky, like the pterosaur egg thing, but just like doesn't fit, then you can put that as a poster in a session that might make a little more sense for it. Um, but yeah, so you just take the abstract of either, you know, a paper you're working on, or in my case of my master's thesis, and you submit that and you say, I would like this to be a talk, please. And in a couple months, they will, or, you know, a month, couple months, they will let you know if it got accepted or not. So it's like somebody does look at the abstract, 
before you go basically just to be like is this like is this paleontology number one and Mm -hmm. is, is it vertebrate paleontology um and unless it's something that's like absolutely crazy it's probably gonna get accepted for the most part um but uh, especially for a poster, the bar for posters is generally a little lower than than for talks. But, um, but yeah, nobody sees your poster. You don't submit your poster ahead of time. You just bring it with you and put it up when they tell you to. Nobody looks at your PowerPoint before you turn it in, or even like between when you turn it into that speaker ready room and when you go to give your talk. Nobody looks at it to check it or anything. So it's like. Sometimes some kooky stuff does come up at these conferences. Uh, but yeah, so unless, Fia, you had any uh, any other thoughts about uh, given talks, uh, I have one last thoughts piece of about advice. Thoughts about given talks. Well, to... <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the term, giving, giving a talk. And that was just thoughts about giving talks. That's a fun, like, it feels good to say <laughs> that. It feels good in your mouth. Yeah. It does. I don't have anything else to say. Okay. Um, something you said earlier when you were talking about your, your jokes, um, reminded me one last piece of advice. If you're ever giving a talk, I would say, try to put in some kind of jokes of some kind or keep it kind of lighter. Um, it makes it much easier to sit through. Right. Um, so for example, (laughs) yeah. So how I started my talk, um, so the conference had an app that they used a third party app. Some conferences have their own app that they use every year. SVP has like a third party one that they use that must do, you know, the schedule for other conferences too. But, uh, so the, for mine or for, for all the talks, it doesn't say the name of the presenter. It just says the title of the talk, the, uh, room and the time. So if you were looking for Gavin Davidson's talk, you'd have to like search for Gavin Davidson and then it would come up. But otherwise, you just have to know the name of the talk. Oh, that stinks. Yeah. Um, in like the printed out thing, I think it said that. But on the app, it doesn't unless you like click on it. Then it shows. But um, on the app, the title of my talk was wrong. And not just like a typo. It was like completely the wrong category. Um, was it like an old draft of something or was it like somebody else's no. talk? It was somebody else's talk for sure. Um, so my talk was in the session about Afrotheria, which are elephants, manatees, um, and some of their relatives, and uh, mammalian macroevolution, which is sort of where mine fell. Uh, the session next door was about synapsids, which, if you remember, are the group of animals that mammals came from, um, but are still very reptile looking. Um, and this talk very clearly belonged in that session and was a talk that I probably would have went to. Honestly, the title seemed cool. Um, but so I, I made a little joke about that when I started my talk, you know, it's just, again, keeping things light, uh, making jokes and stuff. So I also made some jokes about that. I did it during, I did the research during 2020. So uh, for some of my um, like statistical tests, they ran for a hundred thousand bootstrap resamples, which takes quite a while. Um, and I was like, well, I didn't have anything better to do. So N equals a hundred thousand. <laughs> so just little stuff like that. It definitely makes your talk much better to sit through and sort of breaks up, especially if your talk is very data heavy. Uh, it breaks up a lot of that in ways that your audience will appreciate. Yeah, I agree. Cool. So with that, Let's get into some of the cool stuff that I learned. Let's do it. Um, let's see. I also got to meet several cool people um, that I'd like seen with and or seen online or like interacted with a little bit online. One of them was uh, Yara Haridi, who, if you remember, very early on in the podcast, uh, I believe episode thirty-three, we did we did an episode about decolonizing paleontology, and we did that with uh, Dr. Emma Dunn and uh, Nasiba Raja. Wonderful episode, still to this day one of my favorites. Agreed. And uh, the person that I reached out to be the guest on that podcast initially was Yara Haridi. And she directed me to them because she was in the middle of her PhD and she was very busy. So 
yeah, so I got to talk to her for a little bit and just thanked her for sending uh, us their way and uh, and making for a really great podcast episode. And so we, you know, just chatted about life for a little bit. Um, so that was really cool just to get to meet her. I've seen her everywhere online. Um, let's see. Some cool research, though. Placoderms. Uh, they are a group of fish. Uh, we've talked about them a, a handful of times, but they are armored in the front where they have these really dense bone that's basically right at the surface of the skin, uh, but then a very shark-like back half of the body that's made out of cartilage and doesn't really preserve very well. Uh, they were around quite a lot in the Devonian period, uh, so in the ballpark of 400 to 360 million years ago is sort of when they were at their heyday. One of the first groups of uh, fishes that had jaws uh, and also probably where teeth came from. But this... Uh, presenter didn't talk about any of that cool jaws or teeth stuff. They proposed that they used their fins to stridulate. And if you're oh. wondering what that means, uh, you're probably not alone. So stridulation is how crickets and grasshoppers make their chirping. It's basically oh. when you take two things that are kind of Velcro-y or at least very rigid or like, like have actual ridges on them and rub them on each other. The slipping from ridge to ridge makes that cricket sound or that grasshopper sound. Um, <laughs> and so looking at the joint between all these armored bones in the skull and the fins, it looked like there was some of those ridges sort of at the, the joint. So they could uh, hypothetically, rub their fins sort of on their body and make these sounds, which I thought initially was like, wow, that's really weird. But apparently there are a handful of catfish species today that do that. Wow. I did not know that. Huh. Yeah. No kidding. Um, yeah. And the oceans in general are very noisy places, way more, way noisier than you would think. Um, so being able to give off some kind of sound just in general, whether it's to like scare a predator or to maybe even like have some kind of communication with one another. Um, definitely not like out of the realm of possibility by any means. Um, this talk also had wicked paleo art, uh, really, really cool art in that talk. Mm -hmm. I unfortunately didn't get the name of almost anybody, <laughs> uh, giving these talks. So there was a, uh, really interesting talk about the Sarahone formation down in northern South America, very famous uh, for coal, a very coal-rich area, um, but also very famous for some fossil vertebrates, namely Titanoboa, which is uh, up there with We've the largest or the largest. Before, right? Yes, we have. Okay. It is a roughly forty to forty-five foot long snake. Ah, uh. that is. It's basically a giant anaconda. So, like, from the movie Anaconda, roughly, you know, give or take that size. Um, but, yeah, so it was about that. So it's a site that's very famous for its reptiles. It also has some uh, big crocodilians. It has a gigantic turtle from this site. It's it's not that long after the dinosaurs go extinct. So there's lots of just funky stuff going on in the ecosystem. But uh, what they were looking for was mammals. And so they were looking for... Uh, the, these rocks that, uh, you know, would preserve them differently. Reptiles and mammals have slightly different body chemistries and uh, preserve slightly differently uh, as fossils because of that. And uh, what they ended up doing um, was, so this is not all that far from Bogota in Colombia, the, the capital, I believe, of Colombia. And they noticed that all of the roofs of like some of the really old buildings in Bogota have these nice red bricks, which are really characteristic, uh, the red rocks of uh, this time period that they were looking for for these mammals. And so they were like, okay, there must be some red rocks of this type that we're looking for nearby. So they used the like archaeology and history of the city of Bogota to then figure out where they got the bricks from to then find their mammals, which they then did once they found the rocks. That's so cool. Yeah. Previously, uh, if I were a better host, I would have looked up what episode number this was. But in the past, we've talked about the Great American Biotic Interchange. That is when uh, about two and a half to three million years ago, North America and South America joined up uh, after being apart for a very long time. And 
in that episode, we mostly talked uh, in the latter half of the episode about how uh, all the stuff from North America just totally dunked on all the stuff in South America. <laughs> um, and there was a talk that really showed some very convincing data that this was not the case, uh, that the stuff in South America was already, if not gone, very much in decline by the time the North American stuff got there. So it's not that the stuff from North America came down and, uh, you know, took out the, the stuff native to South America. They, they suggested that it was more that uh, they came down and filled some spaces that were already empty. They just came and found nice. some empty apartments and were like, hey, I could live here and then did. That's cool. Um, in the past on this podcast, we've remarked several times about how uh, camels suck mostly because of their taxonomy. We've been yelled at for this. We sure have. Uh, and I actually saw Darren, my grad school advisor, who was the one that yelled at us. Uh, you know, he he came and he presented a poster. And, uh, or no, he gave a talk. Yeah, I don't think he had a poster. So I got to see him for a little bit. It was cool. Um, but, so their taxonomy and their phylogeny, so where they, how they're all related to one another um, is really hard to figure out because they're very convergent with one another. And so... Uh, I titled this section in, in my notes that I was taking, someone may have solved camels, question <laughs> mark. Um, specifically, they were using some skull bones surrounding the ears. So if you feel like at the back of your skull, behind your ear, there's kind of like a little bulb of bone, the hard part, like sort of right behind your jaw. Mm -hmm. That's what they were looking at for this. Um, and they got about halfway through the talk and then they showed one of their cladograms. So how their different species are related to one another. And then my next bullet just says, LOL, JK. Uh, it, this method apparently works for some of the more derived ones. So the ones that are, you know, more quote unquote advanced. Uh, but the basal ones are still kind of junk uh, that did not get resolved all that well. So they may have found something useful for camels, but not solved camels. Darn. Yeah. There was also, uh, speaking of uh, Darren's talk, uh, he gave a very interesting, there's a whole session dedicated to just methods of doing things, specifically like preparation. So it's roughly understood that for every hour you spend getting a fossil out of the ground in the field, you spend 10 to 12 hours working on it back in the lab as in just taking all the rock off of it. Not even like doing the research, studying it, but just getting it ready to study. So there's a whole session dedicated to best practices and things for doing that. And Darren gave a talk about uh, somebody who he was an undergrad at the school of mines when I was there. He didn't, uh, we didn't overlap in like grad school at all while I was there. Um, but that student couldn't make it. So Darren gave the talk instead. Uh, basically, how you get a fossil, uh, especially a big one, back to the lab from the field is you sort of make it an island. So you dig sort of a trench around it. And then you take the, the traditional method is you take uh, plaster, different kinds of plaster, but more or less the kind that you would use for like paper mache. Um, and you sort of paint that over the top of the fossil. Um, usually you put some kind of interference layer so you're not just painting it right on the fossil, but that can be done too. Um, then you put on burlap, which you soak in the plaster, sort of like, then you basically just do paper mache at that point, but using <laughs> burlap instead of paper. Um, and then you sort of, because you now have it sort of on an island, then you then sort of dig underneath it and then flip it over and then do the same plaster on the other side. But what uh, this uh, guy, his name is Anthony Gordon. I'll, I actually know his name, so I'll you know give him the credit. Um, he basically became like a mini mechanical engineer, studying all the different you know mechanical properties of different ways to do this better. Because sometimes uh, the burlap just fails, and when it does, you lose that entire jacket. Is what the the plaster is called. It's called a jacket. When the burlap fails, it doesn't just like fail a little bit. It fails totally. Um, and so they were trying to find a way to be like, okay, is there something maybe may, maybe more sturdy? Or if it's not more sturdy, at least fails less catastrophically. And so they tested a whole bunch of different materials, 
the School of Mines being uh, also a very strong engineering school, had all the different materials testing equipment and came up with a, a new way to, uh, you know, make jackets, which is one of the most fundamental parts of doing paleontology. Um, so I thought that was really, really cool. So yeah, just wanted to give this, you know, School of Mines another shout out for that. And then to, to end off here, I think my favorite talk that I went to was from, uh, I believe it was someone at Museum of the Rockies uh, doing a study on oviraptor relatives. So that's the dinosaur that's famous for quote unquote eating eggs, even though now we know that it was just a good parent and that those were actually its eggs that it was sitting on top of and guarding, uh, you know, when the animal died. But, you know, when we first found it, we thought, oh, this is a, a sneaky carniv carnivorous dinosaur. It must be eating the eggs. But no, it's just a good parent. Hmm, um, that's cool. Yeah, so we've known that for quite a while. But what this study was, was um, basically seeing how much energy, because uh, they built also very complicated nests um, where the eggs were sort of buried or partially buried, which partial burial isn't something pretty much anything does today. Uh, you know, like crocodilians fully bury their eggs. Birds don't bury their eggs at all, save for like a species or two. Um, so they had very unique and highly organized eggs. So basically to simulate um, the parents sitting on top of it, they basically uh, took a bunch of emu eggs and hollowed them out, put a bunch of temperature sensors in them and uh, monitored how much heat was used to sort of heat the nest, having the eggs in different configurations. And they basically took just a giant tub of water to substitute for the um, body mass of the parent. And then basically also went to see like, you know, if they like tucked their legs underneath them in the nest, would that have helped? So they took some just like tube tubing and pumped hot water through it. The, the diagrams that they used and the system for it was looked like it was so much work. Um, yeah. But it was it was a really neat study that showed like, yeah, it really is not unreasonable the amount of because they also measured like how much heat energy they put into the water and how much of that was then transferred into the eggs. Um, so they were like, it's definitely not an unreasonable amount of heat that these things put off to put their eggs at this rough temperature, which uh, they know partially what temperature the eggs would have been at from some isotope stuff from the eggshells. So it's like, yeah, to get them to this temperature, they easily could have done it just by sitting on them. So once, once that fully comes out and gets published, I think that's, you know, going to be one of the more definitive, uh, you know, things of like, yeah, d these dinosaurs were warm blooded, sat on their nests and we have like actual data, data to prove it. But yeah, with that, uh, our website that we used to record is telling me that I got like two minutes left. So oh, no. <laughs> that is the society. That's a hard of deadline. It sure is. That's the society of vertebrate paleontology 2023 meeting. Um, really cool. Really, um, need to have the chance. I also just want to give a shout out to uh, my department here at Bucknell. Uh, something I made sure to talk about in my talk uh, in the, like the acknowledgements was that the university itself does not provide funds for staff to go to conferences. I think they give us $250 a year for professional development, which is not nearly enough to go to a conference. Um, yeah. But the department was like, you know, if, if this is something like you really want to do that is like really important to you and for you to be happy here, like we have no problem, you know, fronting the bill for that. So um, big shout out to to my department here. And shout out to all of you for listening to episode 123 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike. That was Gavin. Fia joined us back this week. And we hope Ooh. to see all of you guys back here in two weeks. Until then, take care, everybody. <laughs>